um, Friday night and went home early. Actually, I ended the night for everyone effectively early. Well done, me. Uh, so that I could get enough sleep um, to get home and discover Nathaniel had croup. So rather than getting a nice full night's sleep on Saturday, I got, I don't know, an hour and a half, um, which just set the tone for the weekend. My children are interesting. Uh, Rose would find the weirdest viruses she could possibly find and just have hives or whatever, but never slowed her down, if you've met Rose. Ezra finds the weirdest calamities possible, and Nathaniel just specializes in croup. It's croup here, croup here, croup here. So um, we, can, we have a cadence now. We know what to do with croup. But uh, I am tired, and I am less prepared than I would like to be. Um, Becca's comment was, good, you'll do fine, because uh, I tend to over-prepare, but I actually think I am on the underside of prepared right now, so apologies in exa- uh, advance. I have no idea how long the sermon is. Um, yeah, yeah. I think this is going to err on the side of being shorter, just to be fair, but I really don't know, because I've never said the whole thing in a row before. So we are starting a new series as well to make this fun. Um, yeah, the other, the other challenge in all this is my notes don't actually correspond to what I want to say. So I have notes. They're just not the actual sermon. So this is going to be a lot of fun for everybody. Um, but we are starting a new series, or kind of starting a new series. Um, Terry and I are going back and forth and have a different, uh, difference of opinions as to whether or not the first three sermons of the year are part of this series. Um, he'll probably win because I don't care that much, but I just disagree. Um, but what we want to do is... And it's to try and set the series up, I figured the easiest way to do it was to give you some idea of how we came to this series. Um, it also gives some idea of the difference, differences between Terry and I uh, as we work through things. Terry came up with the idea he wanted to do a series focused on looking at particular commands and instructions that were given in the Bible and then showing how Jesus how we are to live this out in our particular setting, and then also look at how Jesus exemplifies that trait being lived out. So looking at caring for the poor and then showing how Jesus cared for the poor, that sort of thing. Um, The idea, which I loved from the get-go, loved the idea that it was a great start uh, to the year. Um, It was meant to be something that supported the, the idea of the mission of what we want to be as this church, of living as disciples of Jesus in Los Angeles. Um, disciples being people who are taught by a teacher. Disciples have a teacher whom they learn from, they gain understanding of what they're meant to do and how the world works, they bring themselves alongside what this teacher's mission is and what they're trying to accomplish, and they see this teacher's life as something that they will emulate. Uh, Jesus being our teacher, and then we put on in Los Angeles, because we want to make clear that though we believe we are part of the universal church, that church is something that is embodied in a particular location amongst a particular people. So it's not simply that we are people who are disciples of Jesus and some disconnected. We have our podcasts, we listen to worship CDs, and we don't actually go talk to other Christians, nor are we where we live, but we are disciples of Jesus in this city, in this place, amongst these people. Now the challenge is, and this is where we get to the rub of the sermon, was when we talk about disciples, we're talking about people who come and listen to the instructions of their teacher. And we as disciples of Jesus have a spirit who guides us, but we also have a God who likes to work through means. So he gives us a text. And when we talk about what, and this is where I came to uh, Terry, I'm like, I love the idea of the sermon, but how do we choose what we talk about? Because this is basically our selection of things we can um, talk about. It's the entire Bible. 
when we talk about the things we're supposed to be instructed in to live out this life, we're talking about the entire text of the Bible, and this is not a short book. Um, it actually looks kind of deceptively short when you hold one in your hands, but you have to realize the Bible and the way we print them are printed to make them concise. And if you notice this, if you try to read them, they are not printed in a way that makes them easy to read. They are on... I wanted to say paper-thin paper, which is true. Um, it's even thinner than paper-thin paper. It's not like we are like almost tissue paper because it makes it so you can get more pages in a small space. It also makes it so the text bleeds through, which makes everything you read a little fuzzier. Then you get the fact that the font is ridiculously small. And then they jam as much information into the space as possible where you get your little notes on the side. There's no margins. If you take the Bible and you print it out into a book that is actually easily readable, it's about an eight-inch thick volume. And if you've seen these, these are reader Bibles. They're nice. They're fantastic. I have, I have two sets of them, but I have, they are great. It's what I'm reading right now as I'm trying to go through the Bible because it's a very easy-to-read version. It just doesn't travel very well. So when we talk about doing a series looking at particular instructions about what we are to live like and how we're to draw this and see how Jesus exemplifies this and how this applies to our space, we have a lot of source material to go from, which drove me, makes me edgy. Terry likes to shoot from the hip. I wanted a plan. I wanted to at least know what rubric we were going to be able to use to determine what topics we were going to bring up. So Terry and I went back and forth on this and looking for something that we could do that was concise enough to draw from. And fortunately, we came down on what essentially we felt acted as a summation of what we were looking for, which is, as I titled the folder I put my sermon in, two great things, the great commandment and the great commission. We are looking at those, we're gonna take them, <laughs> the orders are still a little fuzzy, but we're gonna look at those and basically look at something like the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and look at particular aspects of that and say things like, what does it mean to love God? And then look at different spots in the Bible that talks about how we are to love God and then show how we let, do that here and how that gets exemplified in Jesus. So that is the series. That's what we're looking to do. I honestly still don't know what we're doing in four weeks because it hasn't been worked out, but that's the overarching structure. What I'm doing over the next three weeks, and Terry is actually, I don't know if he's going to be in church this month, He's getting really lazy. He let Heidi and Mina take it last week, and I've got the next three. Uh, so just he's on vacation this month, which is honestly well-deserved. Um, but that is. But over the next three weeks, I'm doing an introduction. My goal is to look at the Great Commission and the Great Commandment basically from a 10,000-foot height before we go into the particulars of what it means to love God with all your understanding, to talk about what these mean as an overarching picture. And what I want to do, and also, also in doing that, is give some of the reason why these, there is a justification in having this serve as a summation of what it means to live as disciples. That makes sense? This week is Great Commission. Next week is Great Commandment. I have some idea of what's coming in three weeks, but it's not firm enough to give you any heads up yet. So the Great Commission. Yeah, this is going to be the shorter side. So the Great Commission is actually found in all the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels, which is the same root we get synopsis from, they're the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that basically give a bunch of little synopsises of things that Jesus does. 
They have very similar material, oftentimes presented in the same order, oftentimes a very similar wording, and they stand apart from the Gospel of John, which is not a very good synopsis, as opposed to being a bunch of little things. The Gospel of John is a handful of in, uh, moments that are dug into deeply with extensive uh, writing upon them. Like, the, the synoptics change topics or change events almost every half chapter. The Gospel of John will have Jesus having one conversation for four chapters. So that's the difference between them. But in all three of the synoptics, you get this thing that is referred to as the Great Commandment. The context is different, but the actual text shows up in all three places. I'm going to read it, um, read it from the Gospel of Matthew. It's uh, found in the 22nd chapter, if you want to turn there. But first, to give a little context of how this comes up in Matthew's Gospel. Not yet, Spielman. Matthew is a 28-chapter book, and the big chunk of the back end of it is, is Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. So by chapter 22, we're getting near the end of his ministry. He actually enters Jerusalem in chapter 21, so pretty much this whole thing that he's doing outside of Jerusalem and then turns to go towards Jerusalem. He has made it to Jerusalem. He's kicked, he's overturned tables in the temple, and now we are in chapter 22, drawing near the end of his ministry, and he gets questioned in chapter 22 by two groups of people. The particulars of these two groups, not that important, but you have the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are two leading groups of the Jewish people at this time, who both have different, though interrelated, issues with Jesus and what he's doing. And they both are coming to him in this chapter, trying to discredit him in some way by asking him questions. First, the Pharisees send one of their disciples to him, and they ask him the question about, basically, the government, relationships to the government, asking about paying taxes. And that's where he pulls the coin out, and he says, whose picture's on this? And they say, Caesar. He go, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God, which is in some ways a dodge of the question, but it's a very smart way of answering the question, because it's essentially saying, yeah, to the things that are Caesar's, you can give to him, and the things that are God's belong to God. Now, you can still get into questions on how that gets applied, but Jesus cuts through the question they're trying to ask him. because They're trying to get him to say something controversial that's either going to get him in trouble with the Romans because he's trying to overthrow their empire, which he wasn't trying to do there, or going to get him in trouble with the Jewish people who want to see the Romans overthrow him because they're going to say, yeah, you owe, we owe allegiance to Rome. And what he essentially says is, no, we owe allegiance to God. Yeah, and if God's let Caesar have something, we'll give it to Caesar in the appropriate manner. After that, the Sadducees come here, ask him a question about the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection, and they think they've got something that shows the resurrection is impossible, and he basically shuts them down entirely, um, which then leads to the Pharisees coming back at Jesus, and instead of saying to the disciples, they come themselves this time, and that's where we find this passage. So it's in a section of Jesus being tested, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, that is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what we have here, again, we have the, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus to try and discredit him. They have one of their lawyers, which is basically a person who specializes in the law, in the law of the Old Testament, and 
figuring out how to apply its intricate details to all aspects of life. They have one of these people who knows the law inside and out comes to ask Jesus a question, not to get some information from him because he's curious, but to test him. And he's putting in front of him this question of what is the greatest commandment? There are, I believe it was 613, 600 some, I think it's 613 commandments that the Pharisees would have listed out from the Old Testament. And they would have believed you needed to adhere to every single one of them, but they also believed there were weightier ones and lighter ones. Thou shalt not murder is not quite as weighty as the always confusing don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. So while they believed all of it should be followed, they did believe that there was particulars of which were weightier. And then, as you can see, they were also discussing these things on a regular basis. So they'd argue and they talk about what is the greatest commandment. So you have a topic that is controversial. To give a parallel, well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Jesus to, say, to give an answer. And any answer he says to this question is going to be one where some people are going to be frustrated because are going to agree with him. But a lot of people are going to be frustrated because they think he's overlooking their, their, favor, their thing they think is the greatest commandment. It's like going to sports fans, like to a group of basketball fans, and just tossing out the question to a person who's the professed basketball expert of who's the greatest basketball player ever. <laughs> Any answer that is given is going to discredit that person in some people's eyes because they're going to see a reason why no, the person they think is wrong. Somebody's going to say Jordan, and the people who think LeBron's the greatest basketball player ever are going to see reasons why this person's too stuck in the past and is reliving the memories of their childhood. And the person who says LeBron, the people who are the Jordan fans, are going to think this person doesn't understand how the game has evolved and how much more complicated basketball was back in those days. And instantly you've managed to spin off a side topic and we're completely off the, the basic point. That's what they're trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to bring a question in front of him to where, where whatever answer he gives, he is going to lose support amongst some people. And he's going to create a controversy. Their only problem was they asked Jesus, who <laughs> just cuts straight through it. He basically gives an answer that's similar to saying, the ball. That's the most important player in basketball. You can't even have a game without the ball. Now, it's not quite that absurd, because that's absurd, but he gives a question that's like that that essentially cuts through what they're trying to do, and they are left essentially dumbfounded. They don't respond, so he asks them another question. He, asks, he turns and asks them a question about their understanding about the relationship of the Messiah with David, and when they give the answer, he basically goes, well, you're entirely wrong, and this is why, at which point it says... And no one was able to answer him a word, not from that night, and not from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So he, they come with him with a question, he answers in such a way that they're dumbfounded, and then he follows up with a follow-up question that they don't even dare ask him questions anymore. Essentially, we have come to him, you, to reveal your ignorance, and you have revealed ours so badly that we're not going to ask any more questions. We'll find another way to deal with you, which is what sets up the end of the book. I won't spoil it for any of you. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. Um, but his answer. So they asked him what the great command of the law is. They're looking for, of these commandments, which one do you say is the greatest? And what he does is he takes two of them, actually. He pulls up the one from Deuteronomy 6.5, which is what Heidi read. And he changes the word slightly. 
But it's essentially the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. What he does there is he changes strength to mind, strength to understanding, which really is irrelevant because the basic point is that you are to love the Lord your God with all that you are. So what's the great com greatest commandment? You are to love the Lord your God with all that you are. And there's another way. There's another like it. You're also to love your neighbor as yourself. He pulls another one of the commandments, and he puts that, and he goes, it's like it. And then he does something that is, which is essentially the twist that just shuts them down entirely. He goes, you're asking me what the greatest commandment is. I'll give you these two, but what I'm going to tell you is all the rest of them depend on these. Everything you want me to pick out which is most important, you want me to rate these and go, this one's most important and this one's not and this is easily the least? No, what you don't understand is that everything relies on this. It's all about loving the Lord your God with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself. Right there, that's it. And they don't have a response to that. And that's the reason why we can take this and comfortably put this in the series and go, if we are to live as disciples and we want to pick out something that is both gives a nice spine to a sermon series, and also is something that we can internalize without memorizing the entire scripture. We have an instruction here to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your understanding. <laughs> that you can easily memorize while jumbling. I just, it's with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is, I think, the Mark text, and that's the one I keep jumbling. But we have something that we can take and we can apply to everything that we do. And what he's saying here is to some extent, all of scripture is about having ordered desires. It is about love. It's about who we love and how we love them. See, as I said, my notes are useless, so I gotta figure out what to do here. And what it means is this path of discipleship is one that is walking along a path of ordered, ordered loves. It is coming to Jesus and finding out how we should love and who we should love. It's finding how our loves should be ordered. It's finding out when we are loving the wrong thing and consistently having our path adjusted such that we walk in a path that is shaped by properly ordered loves. And it means that we come to Jesus to learn and be transformed in what those loves are. And to some extent, this is very simple. I mean, really, if this all comes down to loving the Lord your God with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself, you really get something that if we were not people, who, if we had wisdom and listened to this, could hear the Spirit clearly, and we were not people who still wrestled with sins, though its bonds had been broken and though it has been judged in Christ, it still affects the way we understand things. If we weren't in that case, we almost could just have a much shorter Bible with that command in a bunch of stories. But we're a stubborn, hard-headed people, so it has to consistently hear different commands to be shaped in different ways. But we, what we need to understand is that at their root, they have this idea that what we are seeking to do is to love God and to love our neighbors. We also need to see that these two... As I said, we're trying to take a 10,000-foot view, or however high planes fly, 10,000-foot view of these instructions before diving into them, because I also want to see that these are unified. We come to love God. 
And we know that we are to love God with all that we are. Now, loving someone means recognizing for who they are, who they are. And we can see this when a person loves someone in a demeaning way. Somebody like a, you could have a, a slave owner who's like, I love my slaves. I take care of them. I feed them. And you can be like, well, you love them the way that a person loves your property. It's like loving your favorite sofa. That's not love because you have not seen the fact that they are a human. So when we come to love God, we come to love God as God is. The same way a parent, though, and we also don't come in a way that loves him to bring him down to our level. It's proper for a child to love a parent. But when you come to, a child comes to love a parent, they still love a parent as a parent. And in, for them to love their parent as their parent, they need to love their parent as their parent while that parent is in that relationship to them. It means to put God first and to allow him to, 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 in a sense, dictate the orders, the way things are meant to be. It's to come to him and recognize that he is the creator and he's put this world in a created order and to learn from him what that created order is. But it also means that we need to, to look at his created order and to love who he is and his image. And wherever we see that image, we also find something else to love. Because there is a way that the church often, has often historically warped this idea by holding God up so high and you start to distance out who my neighbors might be and the wagons can get circled and it can become something that becomes suspicious of outsiders or draws lines very tightly as to who my neighbor is for the hope of remaining pure and able to love God as who he is. It's elevating this love of God such that the love of neighbor starts to get pushed out. This is something we see. The place where the great commandment shows up in the book of Luke is actually another time Jesus is being tested. And a lawyer has asked him what he can do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus asks that person how he reads the law. And that lawyer returns this answer. But then he seeks to justify himself by asking who his neighbor is. And that's where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Because he's making evident there that you, we cannot, in our desiring to worship and honor and love God, squeeze out who our neighbor is in seeking after a purity. We can't limit our neighbor in any way. That's not a call of indifference to those who are close to us. The scriptures push in a consistent manner that we are to love the world outside of us, to take care of the poor. It also does elevate the relationship of people within the church. Similarly, I, am to, I think I am as a father called to love and care for all my neighbors. But if I was to dismiss the special relationship my children have to me as their father, in the name of taking care of all of the other children in the world, I have done harm to this child because I am the only person who stands to that child as a father. But it also means that I can't then, because in the justification of saying this is my child, try and move down the love I have of the people out here. Sorry, my notes, if this is clear in my head, it would be a lot smoother. So we see in this love of God and this loving of God of who he is, 
this first great commandment, it leads naturally into the second because we come to love all the people who bear his image and are created in his way. But then we also, in the same sense, in the way that we can fall onto one side and diminish who our neighbors are and push them away and push for a pure church and see the afflictions of our neighbors as something that complicates the simple storyline we want to be telling. We can also come in and raise up an empathy for our neighbors and want to start to re-edit what God has commanded. There is sometimes a push to be more loving than God is, to re-edit the scriptures to, out of empathy for others. And again, this is taking co- correct love for neighbor, but we shouldn't take that as a license to go back and re at the scriptures of who God has revealed himself to be and what he's revealed about his creation. Again, because we're to love God in all that he is. So we have a circle here where we love God and we love those who are born in his image. And we love them and the way that we love them is by loving God. In the book of First John, it talks about the importance of loving our brothers And then it says the way that we love our brothers is by obeying God's commandments. And the way that we know that we love, and we cannot say that we love God if we hate our brothers. And the way that we love our brothers is by obeying his commandments. It runs in a circle. And this is exemplified in Jesus. He is one who is perfectly obedient to the Father. He comes and he lives without sin. The entire direction of his life from the moment he's born through to the end is set and dictated by the will of the Father. He consistently defers to God's will, to his Father's will. The book of John is just replete with him consistently saying he has come to do the will of his Father. He comes as one who is obedient, looking to this Father as the one that he loves. And he takes that even to the cross which as Gethsemane makes clear, is not where he's just looking as a masochist to run to the cross. He prays, if there's another way that this could happen, let me know, but I will trust you because I love you and let your will be done. And in this following of God's will through to the cross, he's motivated by a love of others. Jesus is consistently throughout the Gospels inconvenienced and pressed upon by other people. He tries to go away to pray, and people follow him. He can't go even enter cities because people are trying to mob him. He's trying to go to do one thing, and he gets stopped to do another thing. And each place he goes, he meets the needs of the people who have come before him. He heals. He takes care of people. He draws people in. He calls them to follow him, and he follows that through to the cross, where he gives his life for, the pe- for people. He goes, again, at Gethsemane, the only way he can end sin's stranglehold on humanity is by going to a death upon a cross and bearing its wrath. So in that, we can see that everything that he does is also in line with this commandment. But we also need to see in that that they are more than just commandments. This is more than just a set of commandments. 
We shouldn't picture Jesus's obedience to the Father as though he had a super fast Rolodex in his mind. Like every time an instance came up, what he was really good at doing was immediately paging to the right part of the law and applying it. Though I imagine he was very fast in those ways. What he actually had was a heart that loved his father and loved his father with all that he was. And he had a heart that loved his neighbors as himself. So when he got to a particular instance, when he had a particular conversation, when a particular challenge came in front of him, he didn't have to scroll back through the law to get what the right answer is. He simply acted from a spot of knowing what it was to love a father with all that he was and to love his neighbor as much as himself, to seek their good as much as his own. And in that we see that these are more than commandments because commandments are something that get applied to particular spots at a particular time. It's a law for this or for that reason. It's what needs to be done here to make sure you stay in the right path. And these are more than that. This idea of loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbors ourselves. This is, to some extent, what those commandments are birthed out of and what they are meant to follow. This is a way of life more than it is simply a set of commands. This is the way of life that energized and motivated Jesus as he sought to do his Father's will. That he loved his Father with all that he was and that he loved the rest of this world as himself, as much as himself. Because when you get to where this is all going, a lot of the commandments that we find in Scripture won't be necessary. When we get to the next age, when that twinkling of an eye happens and we're with him, I don't think we're necessarily going to need a commandment about whether or not you boil a goat in its mother's milk. Though I might ask and finally get that to make sense for me. Um, we won't need to be told this or that commandment. But, but will we have hearts that love God with all that we are? Yes. And will we be in a position to finally, with freedom, love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves? Yes. So what we have in these commandments is not simply a set of rules. We have a vision for a life. We have a vision for a life that's exemplified in Jesus. And we have a vision for a life that is our birthright as his people. This is the life we are moving towards. We're moving towards a life where we are no longer be fettered by disordered desires. We won't consistently feel that thing that pulls us off course. But we'll have hearts that can look to God with a purity and say, I love you with all that I am. And we'll have hearts that won't look to the scarcity of our resources and consistently fight to find a reason to not love my neighbor as much as I love myself. This is a vision and a way of life 
It's a call, the call to follow Jesus and to take up these commandments is to start to bear his image, to be shaped by these commands such that we start to live them out reflexively. reflexively. We want to be people who do come to the scriptures and hear how we are to live. But we also want to be people who have been so shaped by this story, its instructions, and what it says about God and who we are and what this world is and where we're going and who these people we share this world with are. Then when I'm faced with a particular situation, when my child is screaming at me, when I'm in a difficult situation at work, when one of you has really irritated me, that I don't need to go back to this and go, oh, crap, um, John something or other. I need to be nice. But that I know that I love my father and you are his child. And I know that he has infinitely resourced me and that I'm free to love you with all that I am. That I'm free to be patient with my child and what I do. That I'm free to make a hard decision at work even if it costs me because my life has been shaped by this. And this is something, these commands, to be something that shapes the way we do our community life. When it comes down to decisions, we made a decision about whether or not to have kids in worship. I like the decision. I think it was a great one to have them in here. I'll take the chaos for having them get to sing with us. But we should, it should be a decision shaped by an idea of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. What does it mean to love God with all that we are and to love our children as our neighbor? Does that mean to bring them in here or to leave them out there? It's decisions we have to make that get applied in different ways, but it's, this should shape every decision we make. It should decide when we meet as a group outside of this, how we conduct our services here. Because this is a, in these commandments, we find a summation of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's hard to apply. There's an infinite number of ways we will go wrong in a consistent manner. But it gives us a vision we can live for. I mean, an interesting thing is the great commandment to a large extent tells us who we are. We are to be a people who love God with all we are and love our neighbors ourselves. What's interesting is it doesn't specify any particular work. It doesn't tell me what I'm going to do on Tuesday. And that's what we move to the Great Commission, and I think what the Great Commission ties into, and that's where we go next week, which is to some extent the Great Commandment put into action in this particular space. So we'll get to that, but that's what I wanted to see is in the Great commandment and as we look at the different ways we're applying this life of the great commandment we are applying who we are meant to be individually as a community and who we are meant to be into eternity so yeah i apologize for the disjointedness of all of that um, but i hope that comes through there is a life here for us It's a life we often undervalue. It's a life that's honestly very hard. 
often. It's a life that we need one another to remind us of its value and also to be honest with us when we see each other not living in accordance with it. Because this world and its natural push right now is not towards loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, nor is it to loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's a challenging call, but I think it's a call to a life that's worth living, a life that's rich, and really a life that ties into who we were made to be from the beginning. So what is the great commandment of the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness in giving it to us. We thank you for your patience with us and our failures. Lord, we thank you for your delights and our successes. And we thank you for your consistent and unwavering love of us. Lord, I pray that we would be a community shaped by a love for you that encompasses all that we are and all that we do. And that we would be a community that looks at this world and sees it filled with neighbors who bear your image and who we are to love as we love ourselves. Lord, meet us in that. Breathe the spark into our hearts where they've grown dull to that. Encourage us in the spots where we fall short. And let us be an encouragement to one another. Lord, help us to bear the image of your Son, to resemble him as we go out into this world. Lord, that the world would know that we are yours. And that we would proclaim your gospel. 